Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to the 46th podcast in our series on the second half of American history. In the 45th podcast, I covered the essential elements and major accomplishments of the Lyndon Baines Johnson administration, as well as, of course, some of the setbacks as well. For any of my listeners familiar at all with the 19, late 1940s through the 1970s America, knew that I was obviously not talking about the elephant in the room, which, of course, was the Vietnam War and how that was affecting the Johnson administration. I definitely alluded to it towards the end of that podcast. And that's why this one now is that I was not ignoring it, but rather I wanted to treat the Vietnam War as I did the Kennedy assassination with a standalone podcast episode and perhaps possibly even two before I move on chronologically covering the second half of American history with a successor to Lyndon Johnson, that of course being Richard Nixon. So in terms of the Vietnam War, please note that this is a conflict that I've studied extensively. I can still continue to read on it. Uh, I talk with as many uh, Vietnam War veterans as I am introduced to. I used to have a Vietnam War veteran by the name of Mike Cook who used to speak to my classes. And as I told Mike with the very first time, and he and his wife Lee were just such awesome people from Solon, Ohio. And it was very, very good to me in a variety of ways, in ways that I'll never be able to pay back, especially now that Mike had died. And as a result of this, uh, he's no longer able to speak to my classes. But I do bring his picture up, thanking him once again for his service, but at the same time reminding the students of, again, the sacrifice that he uh, and his wife made. That said, when it comes to, and I say his wife, meaning the fact that Mike would also bring on and, and live with the legacy of having fought in the Vietnam War, which arguably would be one of America's, if not the most, unfavorable or unhappy episodes in American history. That said, please note, too, that in my face-to-face -face classes, as well as my online classes, I do cover Vietnam. And just as I'm doing now with this podcast episode, so too do I do it in my face-to-face -face classes where I treat it as a standalone. Because I don't want students to, you know, if I were to, the other, the alternative to treating it as a standalone would be to continue to bring updates on it from the Truman administration all the way through to the Gerald Ford administration. In, in doing that, though, the, the war tends to then be on the side burner at best, if not the back burner at worst. And I don't want that. Not, that's, that if, if for, the, for the memories of the soldiers that fought there, as well as those that died there, 
this episode in American history needs to be highlighted, in my opinion, more than it than it even is now in the 2020s, much less certainly than it was when I was in school. And I, I, I'm not kidding when I when I tell you listeners that I remember in high school, in college, now again, I'm in high school in the late 80s, early 90s, I'm in college and graduate school through the 90s, perhaps because the the legacy of the Vietnam War was still too raw on people's emotions. I don't know. I certainly wasn't old enough at that time to understand. But the Vietnam War was essentially treated the same way from my social studies classes in grammar school all the way to when it was, should have been covered in some of my graduate school classes. And that was essentially that somehow conveniently at the end of the academic week, at the end of the week or the last class of the week, we would be right up to when the Vietnam War is raging. And then when I come back to class the next class period or come back next Monday, magically we're already in the middle 1970s and boom, we're moving on from there. And it's like, hey, teacher, hey, professor, what about that conflict? What about those 10 years in American history at the culmination of the Vietnam War? Uh, read the book, read the book. It just wasn't talked about. And it needs to be talked about. So and that's where we're going here. And that's the reason, again, as I say, I'm treating it as a standalone uh, podcast episode. Along that line, too, let me also state that as I cover this to the best of my ability, remember, again, that like the, the Korean War, that depending upon how hardline my listener or listeners may be, could want to correct me on that and say, hey, remember, it wasn't a, it wasn't a war. Admittedly, we never declared war against North Korea. We never declared war against North Vietnam. By definition, both of those conflicts were considered peace actions, police actions, etc. So just to keep that in mind that as we talk about, let's now begin to unpack the history of Vietnam before the United States even has that country on its radar. Going back many, many years before, decades in fact, before the middle of the 20th century, before World War II even started in 1939, Vietnam had been, as so many uh, independent, once independent territories and countries in, South in, in Southeast Asia, in the modern day Middle East, in the, across the entire continent of Africa, were colonies of the major European powers of the day. Vietnam was a French colony. And like so many of France's colonies, she could no longer maintain them at the conclusion of, this, of the Second World War. France wasn't alone. England also had to let up let go of her colonies, as did Italy and Germany. The war, the Second World War was so devastating that essentially those once powerful European mother countries no longer had the funds and the infrastructure, much less the military prowess to, be, to maintain her overseas colonies as they once did for decades or even centuries before. So France's relationship with Vietnam was not unique in that way. France was so gutted after the First World War, much less the Second World War, that her ability to hang on to these overseas colonies, to Vietnam specifically, just wasn't able to be done. 
even if France had the money and the ability to do to hang on to her colonies by itself, the French public, the moms and dads, the John and Jane Q public of France, no longer supported the government supporting these overseas colonies. Oh, colonialism, as started in 1492, was finally beginning to come to a may hit a major recess. Not saying leave completely, but it definitely started to recede as the European countries started to relinquish independence back to so many of the colonies that it once had. If one is any of my listeners by chance are beyond board, um, not just because you're listening to this podcast, hopefully that's not the reason, but truly if you ever have a moment of severe boredom and you have a search engine in front of you, look up the 1776 moments of countries throughout Africa, the Middle East and Asia you'll see that their moment of independence for so many of those countries was between 1945 and the middle of the 1950s, because that's when, again, Europe just no longer had the funds and the political and military prowess to once again be able to hang on to her colonies. So when Europe let go of colonies, as they did some after the First World War, the United States and Russia at the time were then became the Soviet Union before the conclusion of the First World War really didn't have a say in it, weren't concerned about it. It never crossed America's radar as something to be concerned about. However, at the conclusion of the Second World War, things changed drastically for American states, men and women. The conclusion of World War I was euphoric for a variety of obvious reasons. World War II's conclusion was not the same. The reason being is that when World War I ended, that massive array of new military technology that had the ability to decimate human lives at speeds and volumes never witnessed before in human history, when that came to a, to a conclusion, yes, people danced in the streets, of course, and obvious reasons for a celebration. It's not that there wasn't celebrating at the conclusion of the Second World War. Clearly there was. But there was this immediate ominous feeling that also the world was still getting darker largely because of the way that Japan was forced to surrender with the use of two brand new types of weapons called atomic bombs. I say two new types because one used uranium, another used plutonium. Because of this, though, the nuclear genie was out of the bottle. One did not need to be a historian, a scientist, or even be educated to see the pictures coming out of Japan, to see Hiroshima, to see Nagasaki. And I'm not here to say that America should not have dropped those bombs, but nobody could deny that warfare had reached a new crescendo, once again, never witnessed before in human history. Every other weapon that humankind has had designed in our history, there was always some place you could go to be safe from those weapons, but not so with nuclear weapons. 
Yes, you might be able to find a location to go far enough underground, to go high enough, high on enough on a mountain to withstand the initial shock blast. But nuclear weapons, as I also treated in a standalone podcast episode, is five contains five different levels of destruction. You might survive that blast, but you will not be able, depending upon where you're at, to survive very long in what would become known as nuclear winter. The weapons were horrific. Keep that in mind right next to the way that people immediately concluded at the end of the Second World War that the reason why that war was allowed to start under the auspices of Adolf Hitler was through appeasement. That once famous, now infamous picture of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain waving that document in the air, peace in our time. Take a quick look at that. Pause the podcast. Look at that picture if you haven't already done so in prior podcast episodes where I allude to it. And I said that picture will come back to haunt humanity in more than one way, in more than one time. Here it is once again haunting humanity because appeasement we fully concluded doesn't work. A sitting prime minister of Great Britain gave in to a dictator that, fine, I'll give you more land occupied by a people that have no say in our negotiation as long as you promise me, Great Britain and the rest of the world, that you will not take any more land. And of course, Adolf Hitler went ahead with it and even signed the document, none of which made any difference to him. Less than a year later, the world would witness blitzkrieg, lightning war, war at a speed never seen before. So by 1945, with the average age of an American government worker, the elder statespeople somewhere in the, between their early 50s to early 70s, these people have witnessed the Spanish-American War. They witnessed World War I. They witnessed the Great Depression. They witnessed World War II. These people do not have a rosy picture of life. They do not have a rosy outlook that all's good now from this day forward. They've had it with that. They've been let down too many times. And it's not just elder American statesmen. It's also world leaders worldwide who are old enough to have witnessed these atrocities and war that literally took place in one person's lifetime. So when France notified her counterparts that she was letting go of colonies here and there around the world, the United States couldn't let that happen. Not now, not in an age of nuclear weapons. Because of our conclusion that the Soviet Union would try to expand physically at any and all cost, the United States wanted to contain the Soviet Union, as discussed in prior podcasts. We drew a line around the then existing territory of the Soviet Union, comprising, depending upon how you see that line, 13 time zones, and say, there you go, Stalin, you cannot go any further. Unlike what Neville Chamberlain did with Hitler, we, the United States, and our allies, we were not alone in this, said that you, the Soviet Union, will not be allowed to so much as take one step out of that line. 
That's what the containment theory was. Why? What would happen if Stalin or his successors in the Soviet Union took that additional step? Just like Adolf Hitler, how many other countries would fall like, want to guess the next word? They would fall like dominoes. That was what also then substantiated the domino theory. Just like Hitler allowed the Soviet Union, allow communism to occupy one more country, and the rest of the countries in the immediate area will fall like dominoes. Why would the United States feel confident in trying to plug the gap of a power vacuum in Southeast Asia? Because it had already proven roughly fairly successful with the way we had managed the Korean conflict. When the northern part of the Korean Peninsula, run by a ruthless communist dictator backed by two other dictators in the Soviet Union and China, tried to swallow up the entire peninsula, the United States via the United Nations and our allies said that's not happening as led by the Truman administration. It worked then, why wouldn't it work now? And that again is what provided the foundation for the United States, but again, not alone. The countries of Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Thailand, as well as the Philippines were sending soldiers and money and aid to make sure that, the Viet that Vietnam did not fall to the Soviet Union and or China. So Vietnam, under Presidents Truman and Eisenhower, was not to send forces to Vietnam but simply to help France hang on to her overseas colony. So starting in 1945, shortly after the death of Franklin Roosevelt, the United States gave an initial then dollar amount of $23 million in support to South Vietnam, as by extension to France, which replaced Great Britain who was also trying to hang on to the region, which had colonized Southeast Asia since 1858. The, realizing that Western influence was actually enlarging or getting larger in our presence with the United States dollars supporting the southern part of Vietnam, the Soviet Union and China, they weren't going to stand down to that. Just as we don't want to see any more communist Soviet Chinese influence, they likewise didn't want to see the expansion of American influence. That was, by definition, what the Cold War was, as we talked about again in a prior podcast. So the Soviet Union and China, therefore, sent financial support to the northern part of Vietnam. Like Korea's 38th parallel, for Vietnam, it would be the dividing point would be the 17th parallel. So again, the Vietnam involvement by America does not start in the 1960s. We were involved for a decade and a half before that. And that's saying to justify, it doesn't, it just to explain that that's how far back America's involvement with Vietnam went. By 1952, the United States was continuing to send more and more aid, specifically in the last year of the Truman administration, President Truman authorized an increase of aid to up to $336 million. 
one might wonder, with that much money, clearly we practically owned the country then. Not even close, because $336 million in 1952 was only supporting roughly 30% of the French cost of the war. So that money alone was not enough to help France limp along and stay and keep a presence in South Vietnam. So in addition to our $336 million in financial aid, we then started to add military advisors. Within the first full year of the Eisenhower administration, a full 80% with 100% French casualties had been added up since 1945, trying to push the communists out of North Vietnam, north of that 17th parallel. 17th parallel. Because of this, Eisenhower, with the help of others in the United Nations, formed CEDO again in 1954. Clearly, my listeners have heard of NATO. I discussed the development of NATO in the late 1940s. This was roughly the same idea. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, with the United States, the dominant power on the west side of the Atlantic, along with more and more countries eventually applying and being accepted into the European part of the relationship with more countries being accepted to NATO. Again, the premise of NATO was that should the Soviet Union attack any one of the NATO countries, it would be an attack on all. So too was the Eisenhower thinking that forming CEDO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, that an attack on one would be an attack on all. The idea might have worked on paper as well as in practice in Europe, but it did not work here. The gross national products of these countries in the southeast part of Asia, after being colonized and torn to pieces for decades, was nowhere near what it was even in a World War II and one devastated Europe. The idea was good in theory, but it just didn't turn out in reality. Why? Because the countries that the CEDO needed to help itself was Vietnam, which was already occupied, at least the northern part, by communist forces. We then get to the Kennedy administration, as Eisenhower did everything he could to keep the United States soldiers out of there. And through to the end, he fulfilled that promise. It would be a different tune with the Kennedy administration. He would be the first to commit ground forces totaling 11,300 total with the first wave of American soldiers going over. Please know again that they were not referred to as soldiers, but rather peacekeepers. At the same time, during the short duration of the Kennedy administration, he also increased financial support. So we are now beginning to pour money on a regular basis into, into Vietnam. Kennedy also was the one to approve the use of napalm and Agent Orange and other chemicals that were used either to eradicate the foliage, which then had a negative effect, of course, on human lives, as well as, of course, being used for his incendiary devices. Kennedy would be the first also to approve the helicopter assaults and then send tanks in as well. By the time the helicopters and the tanks arrived, though, listeners, 
clearly anybody north of the 17th parallel, specifically in China and the Soviet Union, knew that America was no longer just financially supporting the French, that they were also now military, militarily supporting them as well. Because peacekeepers shouldn't need attack helicopters and peacekeepers shouldn't need tanks. Again, saying this from the Chinese and Soviet perspective. There was also, however, and this is what would eventually lead to the divisions within the United States, is unlike in World War I under President Wilson and World War II under President Franklin Roosevelt and then at the tail end President Truman, certainly military experiments and military technology was kept private, was kept secret for obvious reasons. There was an inordinate effort by the Kennedy administration to hide all of America's involvement in Vietnam. And this only added to the tension and the suspicion by the American people, as well as our allies overseas. By the beginning of 1963, Kennedy, in his own writing and in recorded audio tapes, realized that there was no winning this war. He was recorded saying to his closest advisors in early 1963, we, meaning the United States, so let me start this again, quote, we have no chance of winning anything in Vietnam. But if I let a little piece of land to fall to the communists, I stand no chance of winning re-election, end quote. And of course, he meant re-election for his second full term in 1964. Does that not sound so repulsive? Let me repeat that one more time. Quote, we have no chance of winning anything in Vietnam, but if I let a little piece of land fall to the communists, I stand no chance of winning re-election. Again, end quote there. Needless to say that Kennedy would never have to worry about re-election next year as he would never live to see out the year. That put the Vietnam conflict squarely into the lap of his successor, the 36th president of the United States, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And that's what I'll begin with in the next podcast on these standalone episodes covering the Vietnam War. So thank you again for listening. Please leave me a review as well if you like what we discussed today. And if you have any questions, also feel free to email me through my website. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.